Section six of The Devil in Iron by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six. Jahangir Aga waited with growing impatience in his boat among the reeds. More than an hour passed, and Conan had not reappeared. Doubtless he was still searching the island for the girl he thought to be hidden there. But another surmise occurred to the Aga. Suppose the hetman had left his warriors nearby, and that they should grow suspicious and come to investigate his long absence? Jahangir spoke to the oarsman, and the longboat slid from among the reeds and glided toward the carven stairs. Leaving half a dozen men in the boat, he took the rest, ten mighty archers of Kaharazim, inspired helmets and tiger-skin cloaks. Like hunters invading the retreat of the lion, they stole forward under the trees, arrows on string. Silence reigned over the forest except when a great green thing that might have been a parrot swirled over their heads with a low thunder of broad wings, and then sped off through the trees. With a sudden gesture, Jahangir halted his party, and they stared incredulously at the towers that showed through the verdure in the distance. "'Tarim!' muttered Jahangir. "'The pirates have rebuilt the ruins. Doubtless Conan is there. We must investigate this. A fortified town this close to the mainland. Come!' With renewed caution they glided through the trees. The game had altered. From pursuers and hunters they had become spies. And as they crept through the tangled growth, the man they sought was in peril more deadly than their filigreed arrows. Conan realized with a crawling of his skin that beyond the wall the belling voice had ceased. He stood motionless as a statue, his gaze fixed on a curtained door, through which he knew that a culminating horror would presently appear. It was dim and misty in the chamber, and Conan's hair began to lift on his scalp as he looked. He saw a head and a pair of gigantic shoulders grow out of the twilight gloom. There was no sound of footsteps, but the great dusky form grew more distinct until Conan recognized the figure of a man. He was clad in sandals, a skirt, and a broad chagrin girdle. His square-cut mane was confined by a circlet of gold. Conan stared at the sweep of the monstrous shoulders, the breadth of the swelling breast, the bands and ridges and clusters of muscles on torso and limbs the face without weakness and without mercy. The eyes were balls of dark fire, and Conan knew that this was Kosatral Kel, the ancient from the abyss, the god of Dagonia. No word was spoken, no word was necessary. Kosatral spread his great arms, and Conan, crouching beneath him, slashed at the giant's belly. Then he bounded back, eyes blazing with surprise. The keen edge had rung on the mighty body as on an anvil, rebounding without cutting. 
Then Kosatral came upon him in an irresistible surge. There was a fleeting concussion, a fierce writhing and intertwining of limbs and bodies, and then Conan sprang clear, every thew quivering from the violence of his efforts. Blood started where the grazing fingers had torn the skin. In that instant of contact he had experienced the ultimate madness of blasphemed nature. No human flesh had bruised his, but metal animated and sentient. It was a body of living iron which opposed his. Kosatral loomed above the warrior in the gloom. Once let those great fingers lock and they would not loosen until the human body hung limp in their grasp. In that twilight chamber it was as if a man fought with a dream monster in a nightmare. Flinging down his useless sword, Conan caught up a heavy bench and hurled it with all his power. It was such a missile as few men could even lift. On Kusatral's mighty breast it smashed into shreds and splinters. It did not even shake the giant on his braced legs. His face lost something of its human aspect. A nimbus of fire played about his awesome head, and, like a moving tower, he came on. With a desperate wrench Conan ripped a whole section of tapestry from the wall, and, whirling it with a muscular effort greater than that required for throwing the bench, he flung it over the giant's head. For an instant Kosatral floundered, smothered and blinded by the clinging stuff that resisted his strength as wood or steel could not have done. And in that instant Conan caught up his scimitar and shot out into the corridor. Without checking his speed, he hurled himself through the door of the adjoining chamber, slammed the door, and shot the bolt. Then, as he wheeled, he stopped short, all the blood in him seeming to surge to his head. Crouching on a heap of silk cushions, golden hair streaming over her naked shoulders, eyes blank with terror, was the woman for whom he had dared so much. He almost forgot the horror at his heels until a splintering crash behind him brought him to his senses. He caught up the girl and sprang for the opposite door. She was too helpless with fright either to resist or to aid him. A faint whimper was the only sound of which she seemed capable. Conan wasted no time trying the door. A shattering stroke of his scimitar hewed the lock asunder and as he sprang through to the stair that loomed beyond it, he saw the head and shoulders of Kosatral crash through the other door. The Colossus was splintering the massive panels as if they were of cardboard. Conan raced up the stair, carrying the big girl over one shoulder, as easily as if she had been a child. Where he was going he had no idea but the stair ended at the door of a round domed chamber. Kosatral was coming up the stair behind them, silently as a wind of death, and as swiftly. The chamber's walls were of solid steel, and so was the door. Conan shut it and dropped in place the great bars with which it was furnished. 
the thought struck him that this was Kusatral's chamber, where he locked himself in to sleep securely from the monsters he had loosed from the pits to do his bidding. Hardly were the bolts in place when the great door shook and trembled to the giant's assault. Conan shrugged his shoulders. This was the end of the trail. There was no other door in the chamber, nor any window. Air and the strange misty light evidently came from interstices in the dome. He tested the nickel edge of his scimitar. Quite cool now that he was at bay. He had done his volcanic best to escape. When the giant came crashing through that door, he would explode in another savage onslaught with his useless sword, not because he expected it to do any good, but because it was his nature to die fighting. For the moment there was no course of action to take, and his calmness was not forced or feigned. The gaze he turned on his fair companion was as admiring and intense as if he had a hundred years to live. He had dumped her unceremoniously on the floor when he turned to close the door, and she had risen to her knees, mechanically arranging her streaming locks and her scanty garment. Conan's fierce eyes glowed with approval as they devoured her thick golden hair, her clear wide eyes, her milky skin, sleek with exuberant health, the firm swell of her breasts, the contours of her splendid hips. A low cry escaped her as the door shook and the bolt gave way with a groan. Conan did not look around. He knew the door would hold a little while longer. "'They told me you had escaped,' he said. "'A Uetsi fisher told me you were hiding here. What is your name?' "'Octavia,' she gasped mechanically. Then words came in a rush. She caught at him with desperate fingers. "'Oh, Mitra, what nightmare is this? The people, the dark-skinned people, one of them caught me in the forest and brought me here. They carried me to—to to that, that thing—' He told me, he said, Am I mad? Is this a dream? He glanced at the door which bulged inward as if from the impact of a battering ram. No, he said, it is no dream. That hinge is giving way. Strange that a devil has to break down a door like a common man. But after all, his strength itself is a diabolism. Can you not kill him? she panted. You are strong. Conan was too honest to lie. If a mortal man could kill him, he'd be dead now, he answered. I nicked my blade on his belly. Her eyes dulled. Then you must die, and I must. Oh, Mitra! she screamed in sudden frenzy. And Conan caught her hands, fearing that she would harm herself. He told me what he was going to do to me, she panted. Kill me, kill me with your sword before he burst the door. Conan looked at her and shook his head. I'll do what I can, he said. That won't be much, but it'll give you a chance to get past him down the stair. Then run for the cliffs. I have a boat tied at the foot of the steps. If you can get out of the palace, you may escape him yet. The people of this city are all asleep. She dropped her head in her hands. 
Conan took up his scimitar and moved over to stand before the echoing door. One watching him would have realized that he was waiting for a death he regarded as inevitable. His eyes smoldered more vividly. His muscular hand knotted harder on his hilt. That was all. The hinges had given under the giant's terrible assault, and the door rocked crazily, held only by the bolts. And these solid steel bars were buckling, bending, bulging out of their sockets. Conan watched in an almost impersonal fascination, envying the monster his inhuman strength. Then, without warning, the bombardment ceased. In the stillness Conan heard other noises on the landing outside, the beat of wings and a muttering voice that was like the whining of wind through midnight branches. Then, presently, there was silence, but there was a new feel in the air. Only the wetted instincts of barbarism could have sensed it, but Conan knew, without seeing or hearing him leave, that the master of Dagon no longer stood outside the door. He glared through a crack that had been started in the steel of the portal. The landing was empty. He drew the warped bolts and cautiously pulled aside the sagging door. Kosatrol was not on the stair, but far below he heard the clang of a metal door. He did not know whether the giant was plotting new devilries or had been summoned away by that muttering voice, but he wasted no time in conjectures. He called to Octavia, and the new note in his voice brought her up to her feet and to his side, almost without her conscious volition. "'What is it?' she gasped. "'Don't stop to talk.' He caught her wrist. "'Come on.' The chance for action had transformed him. His eyes blazed. His voice crackled. "'The knife!' he muttered, while almost dragging the girl down the stair in his fierce haste. The magic Uetchi blade! He left it in the dome! I—' His voice died suddenly, as a clear mental picture sprang up before him. The dome adjoined the great room where stood the copper throne. Sweat started out on his body. The only way to that dome— was through that room with its copper throne and the foul thing that slumbered in it. But he did not hesitate. Swiftly they descended the stair, crossed the chamber, descended the next stair, and came into the great dim hall with its mysterious hangings. They had seen no sign of the Colossus. Halting before the great bronze-valved door, Conan caught Octavia by her shoulders and shook her in his intensity. "'Listen,' he snapped. "'I'm going into that room and fasten the door. Stand here and listen. If Kosatrol comes, call to me. If you hear me cry for you to go, run as though the devil were on your heels, which he probably will be. Make for that door at the other end of the hall, because I'll be past helping you.' I'm going for the Uetchi knife. Before she could voice the protest her lips were framing, he had slid through the valves and shut them behind him. He lowered the bolt cautiously, not noticing that it could be worked from the outside. In the dim twilight his gaze sought that grim copper throne. Yes, the scaly brute was still there, 
filling the throne with its loathsome coils. He saw a door behind the throne, and knew that it led into the dome, but to reach it he must mount the dais, a few feet from the throne itself. A wind blowing across the green floor would have made more noise than Conan's slinking feet. Eyes glued on the sleeping reptile, he reached the dais and mounted the glass steps. The snake had not moved. He was reaching for the door. The bolt on the bronze portal clanged, and Conan stifled an awful oath as he saw Octavia come into the room. She stared about, uncertain in the deeper gloom, and he stood frozen, not daring to shout a warning. Then she saw his shadowy figure and ran toward the dais, crying, "'I want to go with you. I'm afraid to stay alone. Oh!' She threw up her hands with a terrible scream, as for the first time she saw the occupant of the throne. The wedge-shaped head had lifted from its coils and thrust out toward her on a yard of shining neck. Conan cleared the space between him and the throne with a desperate bound, his scimitar swinging with all his power. And with such blinding speed did the serpent move, that it whipped about and met him in full mid-air, lapping his limbs and body with half a dozen coils. His half-checked stroke fell futilely as he crashed down on the dais, gashing the scaly trunk, but not severing it. Then he was writhing on the glass steps with fold after slimy fold, knotting about him, twisting, crushing, killing him. His right arm was still free, but he could get no purchase to strike a killing blow, and he knew one blow must suffice. With a groaning convulsion of muscular expansion that bulged his veins almost to bursting on his temples and tied his muscles in quivering tortured knots, he heaved up on his feet, lifting almost the full weight of that forty-foot devil. An instant he reeled on wide-braced legs, feeling his ribs caving in on his vitals, and his sight growing dark, while his scimitar gleamed above his head. Then it fell, shearing through the scales and flesh and vertebrae, and where there had been one huge writhing cable, now there were horribly two, lashing and flopping in their death-rows. Conan staggered away from their blind strokes. He was sick and dizzy and blood oozed from his nose. Groping in a dark mist, he clutched Octavia and shook her until she gasped for breath. "'Next time I tell you to stay somewhere,' he gasped, "'you stay!' He was too dizzy even to know whether she replied. Taking her wrist like a truant schoolgirl, he led her around the hideous stumps that still looped and knotted on the floor. Somewhere in the distance he thought he heard men yelling but his ears were still roaring so that he could not be sure. The door gave to his efforts. If Kosatral had placed the snake there to guard the thing he feared, evidently he considered it ample precaution. Conan half expected some other monstrosity to leap at him with the opening of the door, but in the dimmer light he saw only the vague sweep of the arch above, 
a dully gleaming block of gold, and a half-moon glimmer on the stone. With a gasp of gratification he scooped it up, and did not linger for further exploration. He turned and fled across the room and down the great hall toward the distant door that he felt led to the outer air. He was correct. A few minutes later he emerged into the silent streets, half-carrying, half-guiding his companion. There was no one to be seen. But beyond the western wall there sounded cries and moaning wails that made Octavia tremble. He led her to the southwestern wall, and without difficulty found a stone stair that mounted the rampart. He had appropriated a thick tapestry rope in the great hall, and now, having reached the parapet, he looped the soft strong cord about the girl's hips and lowered her to the earth. Then, making one end fast to a merlon, he slid down after her. There was but one way of escape from the island, the stair on the western cliffs. In that direction he hurried, swinging wide around the spot from which had come the cries and sound of terrible blows. Octavia sensed that grim peril lurked in those leafy fastnesses. Her breath came pantingly, and she pressed close to her protector. But the forest was silent now, and they saw no shape of menace until they emerged from the trees and glimpsed a figure standing on the edge of the cliffs. Jahangir Aga had escaped the doom that had overtaken his warriors when an iron giant sallied suddenly from the gate and battered and crushed them into bits of shredded flesh and splintered bone. When he saw the swords of his archers break on that man-like juggernaut, he had known it was no human foe they faced, and he had fled, hiding in the deep woods until the sounds of slaughter ceased. Then he crept back to the stair, but his boatmen were not waiting for him. They had heard the screams, and presently, waiting nervously, had seen on the cliffs above them a blood-smeared monster waving gigantic arms in awful triumph. They had waited for no more. When Jahangir came upon the cliffs, they were just vanishing among the reeds beyond earshot. Kosatral was gone, had either returned to the city, or was prowling the forest in search of the man who had escaped him outside the walls. Jahangir was just preparing to descend the stairs and depart in Conan's boat, when he saw the hetman and the girl emerge from the trees. The experience which had congealed his blood and almost blasted his reason had not altered Jahangir's intentions toward the Kozak chief. The sight of the man he had come to kill filled him with gratification. He was astonished to see the girl he had given to Jalal Khan, but he wasted no time on her. Lifting his bow, he drew the shaft to his head and loosed. Conan crouched, and the arrow splintered on a tree, and Conan laughed. "'Dog!' he taunted. "'You can't hit me. I was not born to die on Hyrcanian steel.' Try again, pig of Turan. Jahangir did not try again. That was his last arrow. He drew his scimitar and advanced, confident in his spired helmet and close-meshed mail. Conan met him halfway in a blinding whirl of swords. 
The curved blades ground together, sprang apart, circled in glittering arcs that blurred the sight which tried to follow them. Octavia, watching, did not see the stroke, but she heard its chopping impact, and saw Jahangir fall, blood spurting from his side, where the Cimmerian's steel had sundered his mail and bitten to his spine. But Octavia's scream was not caused by the death of her former master. With a crash of bending boughs, Kosatralkel was upon them. The girl could not flee. A moaning cry escaped her as her knees gave way and pitched her, groveling to the sward. Conan, stooping above the body of the Aga, made no move to escape. Shifting his reddened scimitar to his left hand, he drew the great half-blade of the Uetchi. Kosatralkel was towering above him, his arms lifted like mauls. But as the blade caught the sheen of the sun, the giant gave back suddenly. But Conan's blood was up. He rushed in, slashing with the crescent blade, and it did not splinter. Under its edge the dusky metal of Kosatral's body gave way like common flesh beneath a cleaver. From the deep gash flowed a strange ichor, and Kosatral cried out like the dirging of a great bell. His terrible arms flailed down, but Conan, quicker than the archers who had died beneath those awful flails, avoided their strokes and struck again and yet again. Kosatral reeled and tottered. His cries were awful to hear, as if metal were given a tongue of pain, as if iron shrieked and bellowed under torment. Then, wheeling away, he staggered into the forest. He reeled in his gait, crashed through bushes and caromed off trees. Yet, though Conan followed him with the speed of hot passion, the walls and towers of Dagon loomed through the trees before the man came within dagger reach of the giant. Then Kosatral turned again, flailing the air with desperate blows. But Conan, fired to berserker fury, was not to be denied. As a panther strikes down a bull moose at bay, so he plunged under the bludgeoning arms and drove the crescent blade to the hilt under the spot where a human's heart would be. Kosatral reeled and fell. In the shape of a man he reeled, but it was not the shape of a man that struck the loam. Where there had been the likeness of a human face, there was no face at all, and the metal limbs melted and changed. Conan, who had not shrunk from Kosatral living, recoiled, blenching from Kosatral dead, for he had witnessed an awful transmutation. In his dying throes Kosatral Kel had become again the thing that had crawled up from the abyss millenniums gone. Gagging with intolerable repugnance, Conan turned to flee the sight, and he was suddenly aware that the pinnacles of Dagon no longer glimmered through the trees. They had faded like smoke. The battlements, the crenellated towers, the great bronze gates, the velvets, the gold, the ivory, and the dark-haired women, and the men with their shaven skulls. With the passing of the inhuman intellect which had given them rebirth, 
they had faded back into the dust which they had been for ages uncounted. Only the stumps of broken columns rose above crumbling walls and broken paves and shattered dome. Conan again looked upon the ruins of Zapor as he remembered them. The wild hetman stood like a statue for a space, dimly grasping something of the cosmic tragedy of the fitful ephemera called mankind and the hooded shapes of darkness which prey upon it. Then, as he heard his name called in accents of fear, he started, as one awakening from a dream, glanced again at the thing on the ground, shuddered, and turned away toward the cliffs and the girl that waited there. She was peering fearfully under the trees, and she greeted him with a half-stifled cry of relief. He had shaken off the dim, monstrous visions which had momentarily haunted him, and was his exuberant self again. "'Where is he?' she shuddered. "'Gone back to hell whence he crawled,' he replied cheerfully. "'Why didn't you climb the stair and make your escape in my boat?' "'I wouldn't desert,' she began, then changed her mind, and amended rather sulkily. "'I have nowhere to go. The Hyrcanians would enslave me again, and the pirates would—' "'What of the Cossacks?' he suggested. "'Are they better than the pirates?' she asked scornfully. Conan's admiration increased, to see how well she had recovered her poise after having endured such frantic terror. Her arrogance amused him. "'You seem to think so in the camp by Gori,' he answered. "'You were free enough with your smiles then.' Her red lip curled in disdain. "'Do you think I was enamored of you?' Do you dream that I would have shamed myself before an ale-guzzling, meat-gorging barbarian unless I had to? My master, whose body lies there, forced me to do as I did. Oh! Conan seemed rather crestfallen. Then he laughed with undiminished zeal. <laughs> no matter. You belong to me now. Give me a kiss. You dare ask? she began angrily when she felt herself snatched off her feet and crushed to the hetman's muscular breast. She fought him fiercely, with all the supple strength of her magnificent youth, but he only laughed exuberantly, drunk with his possession of this splendid creature writhing in his arms. He crushed her struggles easily, drinking the nectar of her lips with all the unrestrained passion that was his until the arms that strained against him melted and twined convulsively about his massive neck. Then he laughed down into the clear eyes and said, Why should not a chief of the free people be preferable to a city-bred dog of Turan? She shook back her tawny locks, still tingling in every nerve from the fire of his kisses. She did not loosen her arms from his neck. "'Do you deem yourself an Aga's equal?' she challenged. He laughed, and strode with her in his arms toward the stair. "'You shall judge,' he boasted. "'I'll burn Kahawarzum for a torch to light your way to my tent.'" End of chapter 6 End of The Devil in Iron by Robert E. Howard This book read by Phil Chenevere in March of 2013, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.